Hello and welcome to today's edition of HIV Matters. HIV Matters explores the current issues people living with HIV experience that impacts on their quality of life. The podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Croston, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Nottingham. I have a long history of working in HIV care and will be joined on the podcast by leading professionals and activists in the field of HIV that I've had the pleasure of working with throughout my career. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from VIVE. VIVE has had no input into speakers or content. Today I'm being joined by Professor Matthew Phillips. Matthew, or Matt, is a consultant in GU and HIV in North Cumbria and is an honorary professor at the University of Central Lancashire. He's currently chairing the writing group for the British HIV Association position statement on HIV and the law. So I'm delighted that Matt's agreed to come and speak to us today about um, HIV and the law. So welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Michelle. It's great to be here. I'm delighted that you're here. I'm really looking forward to our podcast together. So I'm just thinking for our listeners to put the criminalisation of HIV into some type of context. For those who are listening, they may be more familiar with this subject area than others. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the subjects, since 2002, there's been a number of prosecutions for something called reckless transmission that we're going to talk about as we move throughout the podcast, which usually catch the headlines of social media and send it into a frenzy. This obviously leads to um, increased stigmatisation and discrimination for people living with HIV. So I'm delighted that Matt's here today. I'm just wondering if you'd be able to explain a bit more about HIV and prosecution and actually what that means with regards to reckless transmission, as um, I'm mindful that reckless transmission comes with lots of negative connotations. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. And I think that's the first thing to notice that the language about reckless transmission, it feels very loaded with judgment, but that that is the technical language. So I'll be using it a bit during our podcast, but I'd like to recognise that really up front that some uh, language is a bit loaded and old fashioned now. Uh, The context is... um, in the UK, we have different areas of law. So England and Wales share a legal system. Scotland has a legal system in Northern Ireland. So the landscape is slightly different depending where you are in the UK. The majority of successful prosecutions have occurred in England and Wales. And that has been around the concept of reckless transmission, which is quite difficult to define. You'd think it'd be quite easy to define, but it is difficult. The the most compact but perhaps least nuanced way to describe it is that's the occasion when someone who knows that they have HIV and they do currently have the ability to pass it on. So, of course, we now have U equals U, which is a different context altogether. But if someone has HIV and they have a detectable viral load and they can pass on the HIV, they go on to have uh, sex with someone um, and that person then... Uh, test positive for HIV. That's the setup, the very basic setup of reckless transmission. So it requires two bits. It requires that the first person didn't say anything about it, didn't take any precautions and, and had sex, and that the a person who uh, tests positive has actually acquired HIV. 
Now, many people struggle to get their head around the fact that there's a difference between uh, reckless exposure, which is, oh, you've had sex with me and didn't tell me, that actually doesn't have a legal implication in England and Wales or in Northern Ireland. It technically can in Scotland. Um, but it's the fact that someone then goes on to test positive after having a sexual interaction, then it, it becomes uh, or may become of interest to the law and it becomes reckless transmission. Brilliant. Thank you for summarising that. It is a really complex concept to get our heads around. So thank you for, for simplifying that for me um, and the listeners as well. So I'm thinking about that. and I'm, I'm glad how you kind of differentiated those two terms, reckless exposure and reckless transmission. So thank you. That was something I was often worried about or challenged about when I was in clinical practice. So thinking about that, I'm wondering from your perspective during your time working in HIV care, what have you observed around this aspect of kind of criminalisation of HIV? I'm sorry to say I, I've observed a lot of distress about it and, and distress that is really, um, it's really difficult actually. I see people with a diagnosis of HIV who are, are really worried what, what's the implications for me, how can, what does it mean now I have HIV, could I be at risk of being prosecuted? Uh, we did a study, uh, me and uh, Gabriel Schembri, a consultant at Manchester, and we published it in um, the journal uh, of uh, Family Planning and Sexual Reproductive Health Care that showed that even though when people had a diagnosis that had a bit of a chat around what it meant for legal terms, people still struggled to get straight in the head. So so folks were walking away from clinic thinking, I can't have sex now because it's illegal for me to have sex because I have HIV. Or I could be done for uh, attempted murder. And, I, uh, and this is the actual language. I mean, what a dreadful, dreadful thing to carry on your shoulders. And, and I, it, it's contributes towards the stigmatization of HIV, which as we all know, there's very clear body of evidence that stigmatization is really rife. It has terrible and wide ranging effects. It prevents people accessing care, prevents them taking meds. It prevents the right conversations happening to support that person. So the whole concept of the law being involved in the transmission of HIV through um, recklessness, it, for me, I, and I, I'm speaking based on that very small study, but more on my anecdotal experience, it creates distress amongst people living with HIV. Um, and the opposite I actually have seen in my work as a sexual health consultant, that people say, I can't get HIV because if someone told, has HIV, they must tell me by law that they've got HIV. Like, well, that's a misunderstanding too. So I, I've seen a lot of confusion um, with negative impact. That's what, how I'd summarise that, Michelle. Brilliant. Thank you for summarising that. I think you've just touched on quite a few points that I'm, I was going to ask you about, really. So prior to this um, podcast, I dusted off my old copy of Matthew Wyatt's book, HIV and Intimacy. And I know from my early kind of college days of looking at the law, I'm mindful that Although this book of Matthews was written in 2007 and we've had significant advances in HIV treatment um, and what we know about the virus is kind of much more than we did back at that day. I'm just wondering, for our listeners, are you able to give us some insight into how different aspects of the law 
um, and how that kind of relates to HIV care. These are really old laws. So it's the Offences Against the Persons Act of 1861. So it's this really, really old law that was kind of a square peg in a round hole to see how can we prosecute this because it was thought when it went before the courts that this was something worthy of prosecution. So we're applying a really old law. I think that's a law from before HIV was even really a thing. That's that's like using those laws to to work with COVID now, which is a very different thing. So it, it's old laws made to fit a new circumstance, um, which makes them tricky because it leaves a lot of grey areas where people can be trapped in, in their thinking and, and their concerns. I, I think the world has moved really quite further on since Matthew's most excellent book, and I'd recommend it to any one of the listeners who wanted to, to think about this topic in detail. I think the whole advent of you equals you makes things different. Uh, and it doesn't make it different biomedically, because that would have been the same in 2007, whether we had the research to show it or not. If you were undetectable in 2007, you couldn't pass it on. We just didn't have the research to prove it. What has been different, though, is the ability to combat the stigma to some degree and say people with HIV should have fulfilling sex lives and this is not an obstacle. So it can be said really very um, openly, very evidence-based. There's no messing about with it anymore. U equals U, people with HIV, why shouldn't they have a good sex life? The virus is not a concern. So let's talk about it now. Let's not brush it under the carpet. And I think that's the difference between when that text was written, when not to suggest it was being brushed under the carpet, but it was more difficult to talk about or very easy to pop in concerns around morality and this and that and the other. We're in a different space now and a space that I welcome very much. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And also just kind of listening to you talking there made me reflect on that research you'd you'd carried out about what people thought had been said during consultations around this aspect um, of their kind of being moving forward. So I'm just wondering, um, going slightly off piece for you, is there any kind of advice or guidance that you would encourage our listeners um, to be thinking about if they were going to engage in conversations around this aspect of care? Uh, gosh, thanks, Michelle, for that not at all difficult question. Um, I, I, I think for, for all listeners, I, what I'd like to see these conversations need to come from a place of kindness and recognising everyone's right to personhood and to live a fulfilling life. Um, because these conversations can very often come from a point of let's think about the law first. Actually, let, let's not think about the law first. Let's think about Matt Phillips first. He's the lad in the room. He's a lad who might have the worries, he's a, you know. So I'd say for anyone, begin that conversation from the right starting point. Not, am I allowed to have sex? Is this person allowed to have sex? But yeah, this person should be able to and should be allowed. How are we going to make that happen in a context that means that they don't fall foul of the law? Because it still remains the fact that, unfortunately, in... England and Wales and in Northern Ireland and Scotland, you can be prosecuted for reckless transmission. So my advice is, if that is something that is really playing on your mind, 
think about the things that can be done to prevent that being a thing. Things like being on meds and being undetectable, things like always using condoms, things about where it's safe and appropriate to, to share diagnoses with sexual partners. That's where I'd say come from a place of how do we get this person to lead the life they want to, being mindful that there is law present that has got something to say about the fact. Same as you don't stop driving because you're really going to be prosecuted for speeding, do you? You just slow down. You don't speed. Same thing here. Yeah, you know, let, let's think about it. Let's. It's not a booby trap. It's not a place laid full of mines. How do we negotiate this tricky bit that is remaining in the law? Yeah, thank you so much for that. And thank you for summarising my thoughts around kind of what I asked you as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. And I think you've you've hit some really good points there about keeping the person at the centre of all thinking. And like you said, these are rules that, that are in place. So how do we navigate around the system um, as well? So thank you for sharing those reflections. What I will do for our listeners is I'll put some resources about this aspect into the description box below. So reflecting on my own clinical experiences, I've always lived in fear of the NMC and the law and something that's often grey areas in care when we're thinking about choice. Um, just reflecting on our first podcast with Liz Foote, who talks about intentional non-adherence. She also mentioned within that podcast guidance around people's right to choose. And it was a, a conversation that we're kind of just picking up on with yourself. But I'm unsure when it comes to shared decision in HIV care that most people realise this is actually a legal component to care. And I'm just wondering if there's something that you might be able to expand on for our listeners around this. I think that's a tough question. And I'd say absolutely it should be put someone's right to, to choose whether to take meds or not. You know, if we don't have bodily autonomy, then what we're doing in this world and it's not really for me healthcare we need to be wise advisors to our patients we're not keepers uh, of their lives we with the wise advice we're not always that wise listen look at me say that but that, that should be our role the wise advisors i know if you take this then this will happen would you like that to happen if so take this um and there's always that bit about how can we work with someone differently to enable them to make choices that put them at less risk of things like um, reckless transmission, etc. It's a very complicated space there, that reckless transmission, you do have to have the two components. So even if you had unprotected sex and you violated detect, if the other person doesn't get HIV, that's not reckless transmission. And even in Scotland, which is the jurisdiction in the UK that can prosecute um, reckless endangerment, which is reckless exposure, there's clear guidance that that should be used very, very rarely. So I don't want listeners to begin living in fear. The, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Procurator Fiscal, 
very, very clear. This should be used very, very rarely. So if someone chooses not to take medications, that, that should be okay. I have seen anecdotally places and points in someone's care journey where that's become a source of friction between the, the care provider and the patient. You're, you're having sex without condoms, you won't take your tablet. One thing I'd advise listeners to avoid is to, to get into conflict with each other. Um, it doesn't help anyone, um, for one thing. You have to understand each other's points of views and the law is not a, should not be a stick with which to make people afraid. Take your tablets or you're at risk of running foul of the law. That ain't the conversation we should be having. Just isn't. It, it, it's like, need to let you know, same as when you start driving, there's some rules. If you go above 50, uh, you can be prosecuted. That's it. Need to let you know, you're diagnosed. If during the time when your viral load is still detectable, HIV is transmitted to another person, and it wasn't discussed, then that puts you at risk of a prosecution called reckless transmission. Let's think about that for you. What does that mean to you? It's about moving the point of view to the, the person living with HIV's point of view away from the care provider. So a chewy answer from me, I guess. Um, we, we all have regulators, the NMC, the GMC. We, we have to explain to people and support them in their choices. Definitely, and that's something that we're really keen to do um, as healthcare professionals and advocates as well. We support people with the choices that they're making. So it's really reassuring to hear that um, a different perspective on these words that can fill us with dread and fear, both as people living with HIV and also people providing care for people living with HIV. So prior to you coming onto the show, I was reading around um, and I came across um, on the Terence Higgins Trust website, I think it was, a play called Angels in America. Um, and I've never, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've never come across that before and was really enjoyed watching it. So I know that recently, Matt, we've had um, the hit series, It's a Sin. And I think we've talked about this previously on HIV Matters, just the, the kind of impact that's had on kind of um, the current people's public opinion of HIV. So I'm just wondering from your point of view, um, are there shows, other shows like this, of it's a similar about raising awareness and also some issues we may not have talked about with regards to um, HIV so far? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's a huge question, really. It, I mean, I watched it to sin. It was so moving, so powerful. Um, and although my practice kind of uh, in this field began at the tail end of those kind of um, times, the, the scars were still visible in my colleagues and, and those who had come before me. Um, and I think it to sin was really great at portraying that in, in the UK, the greatest burden of um, HIV is still held in communities that are minoritised. So it, it's not just a single step of stigma, it's 
a double step of stigma. And Itzerson really explored that so well, didn't it? A bunch of uh, gay folks, uh, and then and then there was this additional um, move. Um, I've always loved the film A Beautiful Thing. Really loved the film. If ever you've seen that, um, that's absolutely uh, worthy of seeing. It, although it doesn't explore HIV, it, it, it explores um, LGBT issues in, in different communities in, in Britain. There's so much beautiful work out there. There was a wonderful Doctor Who episode, and I cannot remember which one it was. And... Uh, and he'd gone back in time, and he was the doctor was got pally with someone, and then in the eighties, uh, and then they were parting company. He saw a composed of sarcoma on his friend, and he said, "Have that looked at," and then zapped off into the future. There's lots of ways of portraying HIV, isn't there, in, in the media? Um, and what I love most about It's a Sin is that although it was very tough, and I have to say, I, I had to have some tissues nearby as I was watching it, there was still that underlying sense of joy. Uh, and we there's just something to, to not forget about. We can have illness and still be joyful. And in fact, many other illnesses are depicted in sense of joy. I had a heart attack, but now I'm riding a bike again. I have diabetes, but I'm a swimmer. It's time for media to move on, and It's a Sin has set the tone to have HIV, but it doesn't matter. I still do this, and it's time to see that depiction. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, that's a really good reflection about us moving on and seeing how people living with HIV live now rather than these old stereotypes that we have. I'm just wondering, is there anything that you're currently working on that any exciting projects that you'd be able to share with our listeners? Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, British HIV Association put out a few years ago a position statement on uh, on criminalisation in the UK. And I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm chairing that. We're delighted that, that the new position statement's nearly ready for publication and it will be launched at the... Um, Beaver Spring Conference, which is just, I don't know, about five, four or five weeks, I best practice my talk. Uh, so really excited. Uh, I shouldn't reveal much before it's actually published, but we're pushing the envelope. We're going strong on the fact that U equals U. And we're going strong on the fact that the UN advocates that the law really ideally wouldn't be used in this way. So I, I'd be really, I hope that the, the new position statement has the impact that the writing group would like to have on wider thinking around this topic. So, yeah, that's I'm most excited about that, actually. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. I can't wait to read that position statement as well. And once we have the link to the position statement, I'll make sure I drop that into the description box below the podcast. So thank you for answering our questions on HIV and the law. Now it's time for the podcast, which I enjoy, which is getting to know you a little bit better. So can you name for our listeners something that brings you joy? Oh, 
Yes, I certainly can. There's loads of things that um, bring me joy, but I have to say I live out in the countryside and um, it's very sunny here today and there's nothing quite like walking around the garden, the smell of uh, freshly cut grass in the sunshine. And that is just, the, there's nothing quite like the smell of freshly cut grass in the sunshine, is there? And that, that never fails to bring me joy. Yeah, never. That's it, yeah, and I love this time of year because it's that first smell of spring and it's like, what's to come? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That exciting potential of what is coming next. Yeah. yeah. Now we're waking up from winter. Exciting. So, can you share with us a book that you may have been reading recently? Uh, yeah, so I really love sci-fi and fantasy novels. I re- I, do you know, I could eat, I practically eat them. I love them that much. Um, so I just reread uh, a book called The Flicker Men, and I wish I could remember the name of the author, but it's really good if you like a bit of physics, sci-fi, um, bit of futuristic stuff. But um, I'm just planning on my next I've, I've finished a book in between but there's a really great book by um ursula Le Guin called the left hand of darkness uh, that i read many years ago and i'm just planning to reread it it's really if it's it's a really good guide to what's going on at the moment in the world really excellent author yeah okay. i will definitely be checking that one out so thank you <sighs> So just before we let you get on with the rest of your day, I'm just wondering, have you read anything or listened to anything or watched anything recently that has surprised you or made you think differently? Oh, that's a very good question, isn't it? Um, I think that, well, there's a lot in the news, isn't there, that's impacting us uh, at the moment. Um, let me now tell you about something recent, something that ha- I've carried with me um the, there was a king's fund event a few years ago you might remember about hiv commissioning um down in london it was wonderful uh and something i really carried with me was um the fantastic activist uh winnie saruma was on the stage and she said um and she said it very respectfully so i'm paraphrasing here but she said who else is as good an expert of on hiv than the person living with HIV. And I, I have to say that shifted my way of thinking because it can be easy to be trapped in an idea that as a scientist and a doctor that you know better, you take this tablet, and if only you took this tablet, your kidneys would be better, and if only your kidneys would be better, and all of this bunkum, really. I, and Winnie really turned my mind around then. And I've carried it ever since. And any time when I think, oh, I wish the person would do this, I think, Winnie said, and she's quite right, who would know better how to live with HIV than the person with HIV? And I hope in all times when my practice has moved from away from a good place and back to a good place, it's been Winnie's words that brought me back to the right place. That's that's lovely. Yeah, I think she's captured that extremely well. So thank you for resharing that with us. Thank you very much um, for joining me today on our um, HIV Matters podcast. And I will look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks very much. I would like to thank today's guest for joining me on HIV Matters. If you have any suggestions for guests you would like to see on the podcast, or if you fancy joining me on the show, please contact me at michelle.croston 
at nottingham.ac.uk. Throughout series one, our amazing guests have been sharing their favourite books with us. If you're anything like me, you'll have been busy trying to find these books in a variety of different bookstores. HIV Matters has teamed up with UKBookshop.org to create our own virtual bookstore, which is absolutely amazing. Because not only do we get to find the books that have been mentioned with ease, we also get to support local bookshops when ordering our books. If you'd like to learn more about the HIV Matters bookstore, then please click the link below for more information. Also at HIV Matters, we're really interested in hearing your views on different books that you've been reading. So please contact the show. How to contact the show is in the description below. If you'd like to find out more about Nivna, head over to their website at www.nivna.org. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to HIV Matters if you haven't already done so. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from VEEV. VEEV has had no input into speakers or content. Today's podcast was edited by Daniel Heggie. A special thank you from all the team at HIV Matters. Until next time, thank you for listening and together we can make a difference.